Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. Susanna Clarke's long-awaited second novel, Piranesi, has been published to critical acclaim. It was shortlisted for the 2020 Costa Book Awards. Clarke's 2004 novel, Jonathan Strange and Mr Norell, has sold more than 4 million copies worldwide and been adapted into a BBC television series. But after its publication, Clark suffered from a debilitating illness which made it difficult for her to write. On this week's podcast, Sarah Lothian interviews Susanna Clark about how she came to write Piranesi and about how her faith has developed over the course of her illness. Susanna, many congratulations on your nomination for the Costa Novel Award um, for Piranesi. Um, it's your, your second novel. You recently said that um, you weren't sure whether it was a book you could write after the long illness that took hold following the, following the publication of your debut, your widely acclaimed debut, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell. Could, could you tell us a bit more about that? Yes. Um, after, shortly after Strange and Norrell was published, I, um, well, I was at a dinner party and I fainted. And shortly after that, I, I just became, I was tired all the time and um, not feeling myself at all. And it was eventually diagnosed as chronic fatigue, ME. And I was trying very hard to work on the sequel to Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, which I, which I very much wanted to do. But time went by and one of the the problems that you get with chronic fatigue is you're very likely to get sort of brain fog and it's very difficult to think it's very difficult to put ideas together it's very difficult to make decisions and i eventually realized that it was totally impossible to write a large complicated novel if you have brain fog um, it took me quite a long time to realise this, but um, it did, it did, I did work it out eventually. Um, and so, so then there was a long period of illness and I went through a lot of different things, including some quite severe depression. And all this time when I could, I'd be sort of writing bits of various projects. But it wasn't really until, I don't know, almost like 10 years after I'd first got ill, the television series of Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell was being filmed and I was invited to go up to Yorkshire and see some of the filming. And I found that just wonderful, just seeing people doing something creative particularly something creative with an idea that I'd had was was kind of it was just glorious and they were everyone was so lovely to me and they were treating me like I was an author and I thought I'm not an author I'm just this ill woman who's been ill for a very long time but they didn't seem to think so um and so I had I had got to a point there then when I was I was writing a bit more and that kind of gave me a bit of confidence. I thought, well, maybe I can do this again. Uh, maybe I can try. 
So I looked at all the various different projects that I've been working on over the years. And I, I, I looked at the one which wasn't at that time called Piranesi, but it was this very strange idea that I'd had originally, I think, in my 20s, this idea about a man who lives in an enormous house, possibly an infinite house in which oceans are imprisoned. And I thought that's quite small. I th I'm pretty sure that's quite a small thing. Um, maybe I can manage to do that. So I, so I, I sort of concentrated on that project and managed to, to finish it, which was astonishing to me and astonishing to my husband. And I think astonishing to my agent, but I managed it. And the Costa, being shortlisted for the Costa is just lovely. It's just, when I think about how much was, how I felt this was, this was a project that so nearly, I mean, there was so much lined up against it ever being completed. It is rather wonderful that it's now on a shortlist for a very lovely thing. I mean, I think the Costa is, it's, it's a nice, it's a nice prize. I like the way there are, there's the poetry part and there's the children's part and there's a the biography part. It's, um, I, I, um, I, I just find it really interesting. And what one of the, um, one of the sort of taglines for the um, Costa Awards is enjoyment of, of reading. That's, um, that's one of the things that, that the judges are looking at. And Piranesi is, is just so much joy in it, um, I, I found. Um, one of my um, one of my colleagues at the Church Times um, in the book team said um, that she laughed out loud, especially over the dialogue between Piranesi and the knowing other. Um, and she says that's when she recalled the magician's quarrels in Morel and Strange. Um, she was um, she thinks otherwise. The two novels have very little in common. Is, is that a fair statement? Um, I think yeah. I mean, Piranesi is about this guy who lives in this house and as far as he's aware there's only one other living person in the world who's called he calls the other and yes they do they have quite it becomes clear over the course of their conversations they have quite different views of the world and in a way that is like Jonathan Strange and Mr Norrell because we've got two main characters, both men, who have different views, quite strikingly different views on what's going on in the world. They're, they're both scholars, um, Strange and Norrell were scholars, and Piranesi considers himself to be a scientist and um, a scholar, and he considers that the other is also a scientist. So it's it's two pairs. It's a pair of scholars again, a pair of scholars in Mr. Norrell and Jonathan Strange, and Mr. Norrell, and a pair of scholars in Piranesi. I think there are possibly other similarities. Both books have a story that is going on on the surface, and then through the holes in that story, you sort of get peaks 
intimations of another story that's going on behind. In Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, there's what the two main characters are doing and, and all their friends and, and, and the various characters in Regency England. But behind that, there's, um, you sort of get little peeks at what this much older magician, the Raven King, John Usglass, might be doing. So there's a story behind the story. And similarly, in Piranesi, I think the reader begins to realise, better more, more than Piranesi, actually, that there is another story going on underneath, which Piranesi himself hasn't quite put together yet. Um, but it, it's an interesting question. I think it's actually... The similarities between the two books are actually a question more for, for readers than for me, because it's not something you're necessarily aware of when you're writing it, I think. Um, the sort of tropes and ideas that you go back to are often not apparent to the writer until after you've finished writing, and possibly not even then. That's so interesting. With um, Piranesi, it's much shorter um, there isn't that ab abundance of words. It's it's just as powerful though when it is um, in, when it is trimmed down. That's another point that my my colleague was making. Was that intentional? Is that is that your just your journey as a writer? Um, it's really just the fact that um, there's a certain size that belongs to different books. Jonathan Strange and Mr. Nora was always I wanted it to to sort of describe this alternate um, society, this alternate version of Regency society. Um, so it, it always seemed like a fairly expansive thing. And Piranesi, because it was, um, it's about the house, mainly, this, this strange world, which is just, which is called the house. Um, it always felt like a shorter book. At one point, I thought it actually might be a long, short story rather than a novel. But after I was after it was written, I was assured it was in fact a novel. But at first, I didn't know quite how to write it. But it became clear that it it had to be all from Piranesi's view viewpoint. Um, so it had to focus in very much on this one character otherwise the story didn't work so I think yeah there were the material just lent itself to a much tighter shorter um, structure and as I as I said that was why I chose to write this one because I felt coming out of a out of a long period of not writing because of illness or of not finishing anything i was writing but not finishing anything this this was the book that seemed achievable and there are literally so many levels in in piranesi's world we're talking about um, you know themes that are going to strike the reader and one one thing that particularly struck me was that piranesi when we meet him finds his identity in as a beloved child of the house so the house is his everything you know it's filled with birds um, the sea pounding the basement, the clouds and the, the multitude of, of rooms with these fascinating, I found comforting 
statues, the angel caught on a rose bush, the gorilla, the woman carrying the beehive. And, and as you say, he's content. We see that he's content when he's scientifically curious, but, but with this childlike wonder and awe. And, and that's his response to his current situation. But as you said before, the reader knows, the reader, it becomes clear that there is threat around him and that his reality is about to change. And, and that spoke to me so much about faith and Piranesi's faith in his world. And, and I, I understand that, um, I wanted to ask about your faith, um, I understand that you were brought up in a religious household. Yes, um, I was. My father was a Methodist minister, and so we moved around a lot because Methodists uh, Methodist ministers tend to stay. I don't know. Sometimes usually between about four and six years. At least that was the case in the in the 60s and 70s um, when I was growing up. And so we were a very religious household. It's interesting because at the beginning of the summer, just gone, I was attending a, a house group for people um, belonging to a church. I, I'm in Derbyshire, so it was belonging to a, a local church and there were people sort of giving their testimony about how they were how they become Christians and it was all terribly positive and which was lovely and I sort of thought well if anyone asks me to do this what am I going to say because in many ways I think my faith is about trying to get back to a place of faith after it, the, the rewind slightly the the faith the religion of my childhood I think in many ways did not suit me I found it quite problematic I think it was partly to do with the fact that as I say we moved from place to place so we'd wind up in these churches uh, where my father was going to be a minister and we the children would be quite we'd be the new people it was often quite difficult to fit in we'd have different accents than the local people um so i think for me what happened in the end was that a certain sort of protestantism got associated in my mind with being quite isolated with being quite alienated from the people around me i don't know if that makes sense but it is it is sort of how i felt and i think it's that has made christianity in many ways quite difficult for me and so it's been a kind of journey on trying to trying to overcome in a way the prejudice my prejudices against christianity based in this feeling of of these other people are here and they're Christian and they're, they're sort of wanted, but I'm kind of on the outside of that. So, so it's, it's very much been a, a process of trying to overcome that. But when I got ill, I, um, I was in Cambridge and I started attending a church there and it was it was quite it was an anglican church and it was quite different from any church i'd been to before 
it was a church very free i would say from dogma you felt you could say anything you could put any question they wouldn't nobody would be shocked you could tell any you could tell people that you were struggling with this or that part of um of doctrine and nobody would be nobody would be alarmed or immediately sort of rush in to correct you um you were kind of allowed to develop at your own pace and i i found this incredibly welcoming and it sort of just sort of gave me a space i think to think to sort of put my my sort of hurt feelings from my childhood aside and, and to sort of explore and think well what do I actually think about all these things um, so I think I was very lucky to find that church because I think a church which is secure enough to allow people space to explore without wanting to correct them or or sort of bring them into line I think it's actually quite rare so nowadays in these days of zoom um in these days of lockdown i'm also although i'm based in derbyshire i'm also attending on zoom a church in in cambridge not the original church a different one this is st clements which i i went to one a few times when i was visiting cambridge um it's St Clements is, is only a few hundred yards from Magdalen College and when Rowan Williams was the master of Magdalen he, he used to preach at St Clements occasionally so I was told this and I went along and it's a it's an Anglo-Catholic church which I personally love I, I kind of think God has been pushing me sort of catholic woods for a while um it's i feel very at home with the the liturgy and the sort of sense and the pace of the the, the services one of the sort of huge advantages for me of lockdown it, it's quite strange is that unlike other people my world has suddenly opened up because as somebody with not brilliant health it's often difficult for me to get to services or meetings or meet people but now suddenly everything's sort of on zoom they come to me on my sofa which is rather brilliant would you say that you have a childlike faith how would you describe your faith is it reading pirinesi i'm just so struck i was so struck by his 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 childlike awe and his childlike wonder and and he is very content to be in a place that's not full of people but there are there's connection there but it's quite a it's a connection that's not really that demanding the other appears a couple of times a week i'm just wondering if that describes your faith as well that's, that's a very interesting question um I'll, I'll tackle it in two parts. I think the, the Pyrenees' sort of, as you say, almost childlike sense of connection to the house, 
to his surroundings, to the world. That came from Owen Barfield, who is, it was it's very much influenced by Owen Bar, Barfield, who is one of the Inklings, um, who Owen Barfield influenced Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. And years ago in Cambridge, I heard Malcolm Guite give a series of talks on the Inklings and one was about Owen Barfield and this struck me very much. One of Barfield's ideas was that originally ancient peoples connected to the world much more they had a much deeper connection to the world. We, modern man, we sort of think of ourselves as consciousnesses, consciousnesses inside our heads and the world is out there and we're sort of looking out at the world, but there's this sort of gap between us and the world. Barfield's idea was that ancient peoples, earlier peoples did not experience the world in this way. They felt this very deep connection. They felt of themselves as as a part of the world, their life and the life of the world was sort of the same continuum. Um, they were, the things that happened to them and the things that they did were part of a large, a much larger drama that was going on in which the world and the gods were included. And I found this a very striking idea. Oh, in Bar Barfield called it original participation and in Piranesi, one of the things I was trying to do was to describe as best I could what that might have been like to feel that your life was just part of a greater life that was going on all around you and to feel this sense of connection and not to feel that kind of gap that alienation which we tend to feel so so that was a very deliberate effort on my part to to sort of the Piranesi should feel like he perfectly belonged in the world in which he found himself and that the world was benevolent and that it it really cared for him and he for it on the question as to whether I have a faith that's like that, I would say I wish I did. I remember someone once saying that Christianity was very simple. And I thought, well, it might have a simplicity, but it's not a simplicity that I think is necessarily easily grasped at by human beings. I think it's a simplicity that you try and work towards so you kind of uh, at least I, I, I feel that I'm kind of struggling towards a, a simpler more childlike faith but I'm trying to sort of get rid of all the neuroses and the difficulties that have accumulated like barnacles um, trying to scrape them off and get back to a simplicity something like that there's, there's a sort of uh, marine image to go with Piranesi. So I think this, I think this fits in from a quite personal point of view. So Piranesi's childlike faith. So there's an obvious reference right at the beginning. There's a quote from C.S. Lewis's um, The Magician's Nephew. And when I was a child, those stories 
the magician's nephew was was a favorite book it, it it allowed me to actually explore questions like reality and going into the the, the image of, of going into different worlds into different realities and i i mean maybe i'm just looking in the wrong place but when i read piranesi it was i was like i was plunged back in into that that world again it sort of provided me like a an almost like a safe space to, to think about subjects like that where that i don't find safe spaces in our in our current culture so there's there's black mirror the, the black mirror series that you know is quite um quite bleak there's not much comfort there and, and for me personally when i find myself thinking about concepts like eternity and the nature of consciousness it, it can be a sign that i'm about to sort of enter a, a depressive bout there's no sort of there's no sort of real answers or, or comfort um and i have found comfort in faith but sometimes in our our sort of religious culture and i'm not you know i'm not um i don't have a theology degree i'm not so I, you know i'm not sort of i'm not academic particularly but i'm just wondering if there is something missing in our religious culture in the uk i see lots of dry discussions about doctrine um and anglicans having arguments on on twitter and, and I, I just found Piranesi a, a wonderful, safe place to, to sort of, to, I, I've just found it very comforting. Well, thank you. Thank you for saying that. I mean, I think, I think that was definitely something that I was going for, that Piranesi finds joy in his connection with the house. The house is a place which he thinks is infinitely beautiful and also infinitely kind to him. There are dangers there. There are, there are perils. The tides come up. It is possible if you don't understand them the way he does to get caught by, by the sea. In some ways, his life is quite difficult. He has to feed himself he has to fish and gather seaweed and feed himself and his clothes are always wearing out and he has to mend his his glasses with fish leather <laughs> which doesn't sound very very um it doesn't sound very good at all really um so it's not a terribly a terribly easy life but it is a joyful life and I, I am quite, I am very interested in describing joy because, as you say, it's not something that necessarily is described very much in novels. I, I guess I tend to look, I, 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 thought, I thought this is a very interesting question and I don't have a very, very good answer to it where where does one look in modern culture for joy um well if you're me possibly strictly strictly come dancing i had a, a, a bout of much more serious illness about four years ago and it was just about the time of the last american election i remember and i was in hospital i was feeling very very grim and almost full of a kind of dread 
and the sort of things that I found helped me was partly reading novels. Uh, mostly, I think I was reading mostly Diana Wynne Jones's children's fantasy, which which I recommend highly. They're wonderful books. But I was also watching a lot of Strictly Come Dancing because that is a joyful thing. It is people dancing. It is people who are who are learning something and and, and discover. Very often, I, I know it's very. It's very formalized. They always say they're having a wonderful time. They're always saying they're really enjoying it. But a lot of the time you can tell that at least some of them really do mean it. So, so there's, there's that sort of thing, which I think in my childhood would have been, or perhaps I would have at one time slightly despised, but no longer despised, because I think actually there's something quite real going on there. But yes, I, th I, think, I think joy can be missing from a lot, of, a lot of what we do in church. Certainly, for me, looking back at C.S. Lewis's Narnia books that you talked about, when Aslan arrives, there is so much joy. And yet joy isn't necessarily something that we associate with God. But I think it's a very important part of, of being connected to God. But very often, I know at one time, I felt that God was much more of a kind of... Someone who was telling me I wasn't good enough. I felt that quite strongly and for quite a long time that it was a sort of disapproving presence rather than a joyful presence. So the joyfulness is something that I actually kind of deliberately set out to rediscover and to find things that, that sort of helped me with that. Julian of Norwich, I think, is, is helpful here. So one of my colleagues um, read a profile piece um, about you in the New Yorker magazine um, and in it you talked about um, writing for your church newsletter and my colleague was was fascinated by this. Are you, are you writing for the for the local church magazine and if so she was she was saying how lucky they are do they you know do they are you doing it anonymously or do they realize they have an internationally acclaimed author writing writing for them? Um, it's, it's a letter, I, I mentioned that I've, I've been joining on Zoom St. Clement's in Cambridge. I'm actually based in Derbyshire there in Cambridge. And at the beginning of the lockdown, St. Clement's started sending out a daily letter, which they're still doing, which is rather wonderful. And I contribute a letter um, and lots of other people contribute to it. And it's really a rather wonderful thing, I think, because some of the people who contribute are clergy or retired clergy, obviously. Um, and Rowan Williams wrote, did write for it when he was still in Cambridge, which, which was fantastic. I don't know how he writes so much. Um, but a lot of the people who, who write for it are lay people. They may be sort of touching on sort of Christian subjects, or they may be just writing something about their life, 
or sometimes they might write about church architecture. It's a, it's a huge range. And in actual fact, I think very often the, the lay people's letters are actually more interesting than the sort of clergy letters, which tend to read a bit like, or may read, not all of them, but sometimes they read a bit more like sermons. And that's, there's nothing wrong with that, but it's, um, it's just the wide range of these letters, uh, which are called Dearly Beloved. And they have a much wider readership than the number of people who at the moment come to the church services. So there's a lot of people that these, these letters are reaching. So in answer to your question, yes, they, they, they know who I am, but I, I don't think it's, I mean, I actually find the letters quite difficult to do. It's a very different thing than writing a story to kind of find something to say to people within a Christian context. And very often I feel quite nervous about it. Um, but it's something I enjoy doing and I very much enjoy the, just the breadth of these letters. They're brilliant. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode. Thank you.